Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, employees of Whole Foods, owned by the world's richest man, Jeff Bezos, were asked to give their own accrued paid sick days to co-workers who had either contracted the virus or been forced to take time out of work. Jeff Bezos could have given every single worker unlimited paid sick leave without his bank account even noticing. But that move shows, for those who might miss the message, that corporate capitalists really mean it. This is the system they support all the time, even when it means wealthy companies saying that life-saving equipment just isn't profitable enough for them to distribute. Or that, yeah, they'll take paycheck protection money from the state and then fire workers anyway. Or that actually protecting workers' health in a pandemic just doesn't serve their bottom line. So, no, they're not going to do it. Then, if you're confused or upset by that, here come corporate media saying, "Mm, no, that's a completely valid point of view. And underscoring the idea that our economy means... Everyone is always on the edge of disaster, so you better show up for work or you'll lose your health care and you won't make your mortgage or your rent payment. You'll be sick and on the street, and you know what? That's just how it is. Such a deep, encompassing, anti-human narrative calls for not just debunking, nibbling around the ankles, but a full frontal assault on a story about how workers are powerless and deserve to be. An important part of any counter-narrative is provided by worker cooperatives, the way they treat workers and productivity and the balance of worker health and company success in a pandemic and every day. We'll talk about the complications co-ops pose to corporate media's economic storyline with Jessel Noor, senior reporter at The Real News Network. Also on the show, the Keystone XL pipeline has evidently been killed. Enbridge's Line 3 is, as we speak, the center of a huge gathering in Minnesota, the Treaty People Gathering, to call attention to the myriad harms it likewise poses to people and the environment. Fossil fuel companies' onward march is under threat. Maybe not as much as many of us would like, but obviously much more than they would like. As companies get increasingly desperate, and let's not fool ourselves, no one's headed to the poorhouse, it's an industry that wants to make every last penny before they close shop, well, we can only expect their greenwashing to get smarter and more subtle. They've been working on that greenwashing for a long time with a lot of smart people involved. Part of their work right now is convincing you and me that fossil fuel companies are working hard to get to the net zero emission standard that the Paris Accord calls for and more broadly, to give us to understand that if we're looking for a solution to climate disruption, well, we ought to honor and even privilege the participation of fossil fuel companies in that conversation. We'll start to unpack that message and shine a light on the messengers with Duncan Meisel, campaign director at the climate-focused, behind-the-scenes ad group Clean Creatives. 
That's coming up, and we're going to get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. COVID laid bare a number of conflicts, hypocrisies, and frank inequities that normal times and corporate media kept hidden from some. Perhaps most depressing, the pandemic saw media openly suggesting that some workers could be both essential and expendable. Some faceless thing called the economy could demand that people return to work but would not be responsible for protecting their lives and their health when they did. Other countries were guaranteeing wages while encouraging workers to stay home to protect their lives and those of others, but avert your eyes from those examples. Those models are not for us. In the U.S., the economy simply had to restart though it necessarily meant picking sides in a battle that one New York Times headline described as lives versus livelihoods. A moral trade-off, the paper called it. Well, important to maintaining the idea that such a trade-off is necessary is obscuring, erasing, and denigrating other economic models. Jessel Noor has been looking at co-op businesses, specifically during the pandemic. He's senior reporter at the Real News Network, and he joins us now by phone from Baltimore. Welcome to Counterspin, Jessel Noor. It's great to be back on. Well, corporate media report the crises of corporate capitalism as flawed and yet still this only game in town. You know, they allow debate, but only up to a point when you start asking questions about the structure. And that's why it's so valuable to dig into other structures that exist. Co-ops are facts on the ground. You can't say Well, if the workers were the owners, they would be lazy because there are real-world examples. So I just wanted to start you off by saying, what did you learn from this project on co-op workers? And specifically, what did those workers tell you about their pandemic experience? Yeah, and I, I really appreciate the invitation to have this important conversation because a lot of what I ended up doing was media analysis in this project, because before I started this project, I was reporting on how other businesses and institutions dealt with the pandemic. And you're absolutely right. What workers were told, what the public was told was that there is this choice. You can keep the economy going or you can keep people safe. You can't do both. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to look at how worker cooperatives respond to the pandemic. They've been around for decades and fundamentally they work within the capitalist system, but their top priority is in profits. You know, they are businesses. They are for-profit businesses. They are seeking to make a profit. But because the workers are the owners, they're not going to put profits in a higher importance over their lives. That's a deeply profound thing in our American society where profit is God, where Jeff Bezos is God, where he gets thousands of these articles talking about how much his wealth has increased during the pandemic alone. And very few people are asking what cost does that come with? What what social cost does it come with to have this massive concentration of not only wealth and power? So the amazing thing about cooperatives is that even though they are small businesses with uh, owned by workers um, for the large part that come from communities that don't have a lot of wealth, you know, most worker cooperatives in America are 
And I'm talking about specifically democratically controlled workplaces. They are in frontline sectors. They are in service sectors. It's low-wage work. It's not going to generate massive amounts of wealth, but you can have a workplace with dignity. You can have profit sharing. You can have a living wage. And these are all things we are told that you can't have in America. You can't have a profitable business while also protecting their workers. And so when these businesses were confronted with the same challenges other businesses were facing, where you had CEOs telling workers to go into the warehouse, no matter how many people were getting sick, ignoring, like in Amazon's case, ignoring the thousands of workers that got sick, maybe the dozens that died. When you have CEOs and managers making a decision and they're not accountable to the workers, they're going to make very different decisions than democratic workplaces where the workers can make their own decisions, can vote, debate, and decide, you know, what is best for them and the business. And it turns out that by taking those steps, your business has a better chance of succeeding. There's reports of 100,000 small businesses closing because of the pandemic. And according to the figures and the numbers we have so far, what we know, worker cooperatives fared much, much better. There was 60 worker cooperatives that work with a loan fund called Seed Commons, and none of them closed permanently due to the pandemic. The worker owners at these cooperatives were able to work together. You know, they still face challenges. Many of them had to close temporarily or had to pivot their business models, but they were able to stay open. They were less likely to lay off their workers, and they prioritized public safety, their workers' safety, and keeping their businesses sustainable. That all goes to say that basically what you raise, this lie that we've been taught, that it's, it's profits and nothing else matters, is wrong. Even in our current society, even with this inequality, we can have successful businesses that exist, that pay a living wage, and that can treat their workers with the respect they deserve. And, and, and as you mentioned, these are the heroes. These are frontline workers that were, you know, there were, there were placards and billboards made for, you know, created to honor them, quote unquote, while they were still being given substandard wages, not given PPE, not given sick leave. And these are all things that worker co-ops provide. Well, let me just say, I think part of the story that media tell is that it's business owners versus workers. And yet I've spoken to numerous business owners and small business owners who aren't about that, you know, as as you're just saying, and who recognize that if their workers can buy food and buy clothing for their kids, they're more likely to stay at the job. You know, it's all very simple if you just think about it, and yet we're kind of overcome with a narrative about a conflict between profitability and workers' lives that doesn't really exist. So in other words, it's part of about who people listen to, you know? It's it's part of about who gets to speak in the media. So I guess I just want to ask you, as a, as a media person, as well as a person who's been researching co-ops, what would be the translation? What could journalists do that would lift up this model, that would complicate the narratives that major news media are telling about the economy, what would the intervention of actually knowing about cooperative businesses, what could that do? So on a very simple level, one thing I was struck by when there was reports all across the country, I was looking at newscasts from local TV stations, where they were talking about this worker shortage. And all the people they interviewed, and I watched dozens of these broadcasts, 
almost every single person they interviewed was a business owner, in some cases, small business owners. You know, you can talk to workers. You can talk to people that don't want to work for low wages, you know, and put their lives on the line for minimum wage and no benefits. You know, on a simple level, talk to workers. And if small businesses or restaurants are facing challenges in hiring workers at this current time, find a local worker cooperative in your area or any business that pays a living wage that has benefits, that has some type of profit sharing or democratic control of their workplace. You know, are they facing the same challenges? If not, then maybe you're on to something, you know. What the workers told me is that it doesn't feel like a job in the traditional sense when someone is a master over you, over your your work, when you are your own boss, when you get to create the job, you get to create the working conditions, and you get a share of the profit at the end of the day. That's something that most jobs won't offer. And I think the biggest part of that is just bosses being unwilling to give over control and thinking they know what's best for their workers, what's best for their business. And cooperatives prove that the people that are actually doing the work that the the bosses and CEOs are profiting from, they actually know a little bit about what it takes to run this business. And having a say and having power can be transformative. So yeah, so talk to workers, talk to worker owners, talk to talk to people in cooperatives and see if if their perspective is different than what CEOs are telling them. We've been speaking with Jason Noor. He's senior reporter at The Real News Network. You can find their work online at trnn.com. Jason Noor, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much for having me. Humorist Dave Barry once wrote that the value of advertising is that it tells you the exact opposite of what the advertiser actually thinks. For example, if the ad says, this is not your father's Oldsmobile, the advertiser is desperately concerned that this Oldsmobile, like all other Oldsmobiles, appeals primarily to old farts like your father. Different, but related, is a line from the movie How to Get Ahead in Advertising, in which a character explains everything is high in something, and if it's not, it's low in something else. That explains popcorn packaging, declaring it gluten-free, for example. Advertising is about redirecting thought and emotional energy away from what someone doesn't want you to think about and onto what they do. It matters if it's potato chips or car insurance or sneakers. It matters tremendously if it's the fate of whole communities and the planet. But although we have a general understanding that fossil fuel companies are invested in their public image, inasmuch as it affects regulation they might face and their ability to do business, we don't often hear about the role of advertising in Greasing the wheels of climate disruption, of sheltering polluting extractive companies from the worldwide time-constrained effort to get them to stop. That's where our next guest's work comes in. Duncan Meisel is campaign director at Clean Creatives, a group of PR and ad professionals who see the threat of climate disruption and their industry's role in it. He joins us now by phone from Austin, Texas. Welcome to Counterspin, Duncan Meisel. Thank you so much for the chance to talk. 
Well, let's start with the most recent thing. Clean Creatives released an ad mocking an ad from the big ad agency WPP. Could you fill listeners in on their ad and and, and what made you feel it was ripe for some explanatory satire? Well, for context, WPP is the world's largest holding company of advertising firms. So they're basically a conglomerate of many, many ad firms themselves. And inside WPP, they have a number of clients who are big oil companies, BP, Exxon, Chevron, Shell. And WPP does all kinds of work for them, recycling their image, you know, sharing misleading advertisements. And they do include some PR companies, so doing, you know, the PR inside game as well. And so WPP on Earth Day this year made a pledge to bring their operations to net zero. And they said that they would save 5.4 megatons of carbon dioxide by taking this pledge. And If they were a manufacturer of cars or widgets or really anything, that would be extremely meaningful. Bringing your operations to net zero is basically what we are asking the world to do in the Paris Climate Agreement. The problem is that they are doing this advertising for fossil fuel companies that are the biggest polluters on the planet. And so they released a very snappy video. They are very good at what they do, talking about zero, not just the power of the idea of zero. Mm -hmm. And we thought it was very interesting that they were also doing zero about fossil fuels. And their executive CEO, Mark Reed, was asked about their work for fossil clients when they made their pledge. And he said, oh, no, we're we're not going to look at that. We're not going to deal with that. We're not going to change anything about our relationship with them. And so we thought if you're really pledging zero to do zero, that's something that we should talk about. And so we actually went and we did the math on the amount of carbon dioxide that their fossil fuel clients produce. And while WPP may be saving 5.4 megatons of carbon, the fossil fuel companies that they work for produce over 2,000 megatons of carbon. And so when you think about it, you're an advertising company. Your job is to increase the sales of your clients. And the point in which they are increasing the sales of their clients by essentially any amount they are wiping out the impact of that 5.4 megatons of carbon that they have saved. So that's kind of the math and the big picture and why we thought this was an important conversation. Well, just in case folks missed it in there, WPP was saying they themselves, as an advertising conglomerate, were going to get to net zero, like within their offices, within their company. That's what they were saying in that ad. Exactly. So like fewer flights, renewable energy in your offices, reusable cups, you know, all, all stuff that's, that's good. Sure. Like I, I don't, you sure. Know. And mean, then you're going to go to work doing an ad for Shell, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly, okay, yes. okay. Well, you know, I think of that Dave Barry thing whenever I see an ad for a polluting company and it features like fish swimming in sparkling water or the sun rising over a field of flowers. These companies are really encouraging us to think of their impact on the world as the opposite of what we know it to be. And Clean Creatives has been on to this, and you say that this is actually, this is a messaging effort that's more than 100 years old, which blows my mind. The idea that fossil fuel companies are part of the solution. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this has essentially been the message that fossil fuel companies have been sending since public relations even existed. Mm -hmm. You know, the person who invented the press release worked for 
Rockefeller and Standard Oil. And Rockefeller Standard Oil is a huge, huge monopoly conglomerate, and they actually were involved in a coal miners' strike in Colorado where dozens of coal miners ended up being murdered. They were killed while on the strike. And it was a huge scandal. This is about 1914. And Ivy Lee, the guy who invented the press release, told Rockefeller, he's like, okay, here's what you got to do. Don't call them radical. Don't call them extremists. Just go there and talk to them and say that you're ready to make change. And that's what he did. He went to Colorado and he sat down and says, well, you know, we're very sorry. We feel this is terrible. And then went back and just kept doing the same, same thing he was doing before, you know, making the money the same way he had previously. And so that's kind of been the story ever since then, is that every time there's a real challenge to their power, they say, oh, well, we're ready to change. Things are going to be different this time. And I think there's a really important parallel also here to the tobacco industry mm-hmm. and, you know, the liability and legal challenges they faced up until the 90s when it really came to a head. And the same thing happened. They're playing from the same playbook. You know, I, I found this great ad from 2000 or something like that from Lowlyard Tobacco. And it was this you know, stylized sort of like psychedelic poster. It says, tobacco is wacko. <laughs> And what they found was actually that showing these ads to teens increased teen smoking, (laughs) that they actually were counterproductive. And the same thing is happening now. You know, they are showing off these ads where they say, oh, we're ready to like move past our business model. We're ready to change. And the goal of these ads is to distract from the impact of their actual business model and to delay action that would otherwise regulate their ability to make profits on pollution. It also kind of dovetails with a corporate media message, a kind of implicit message, which is leave it to the experts. Some folks get outraged when we learn that gas companies are advising the government on pipelines, for example. But then other people are saying, well, but they're the ones who know it. They know the business, right? The corporate PR fits in with a media responsiveness that says, well, if you're talking about an industry, you should include an industry expert. So there's kind of a frictionless where there ought to be friction relationship between advertisers and media, I think. I think that's the case. And I I also, you know, there's an interesting example of this where Washington, D.C. publication The Hill was hosting a conference. It's one of their part of their business model. They invite people to come get together and talk. And it was about the clean energy future. And, you know, I was curious about it. So I went, they had a bunch of government people there, Gina McCarthy from the White House, uh, some senators. And I was looking at the sponsors and the sponsors were the American Petroleum Institute, the private equity front group, and then Philip Morris. And I was like, why is Philip Morris part of this conversation about clean energy? Like, this is a really strange thing. And what I realized is, you know, not only are these, of course, like big oil borrowing the strategy of of big tobacco, but, you know, if Philip Morris tried to sponsor a conference about tobacco and smoking cessation, no one would come. They would would know it's corrupt. They wouldn't. They'd say absolutely not. But somehow the American Petroleum Institute, despite being, you know, this multi-decade effort to deny climate change, defer climate change action, they still have some veneer of credibility that they can show up to a conference about climate transition and still be seen as legitimate. Yeah, you know, and the the only folks left out are us, are the public. Well, finally, there's a new report from Friends of the Earth International, Corporate Accountability and the Global Forest Coalition that's called the Big Con, and that's talking about how companies like Shell and Microsoft and Nestle are lobbying for net zero targets that don't actually reduce 
their emissions, you know, that they're using kind of distraction techniques to give the impression that they're reducing emissions and getting to net zero when they actually are not. So there's a reason to keep a sharp eye on what's even meant by the language, you know, because if corporations can get the term defined down, then ads can use it and have people think it means something it doesn't. There's just a lot of pieces to this machinery of public opinion that we don't often hear about. And one of those, I guess, is what do we even mean by net zero? Yeah, and net zero is an important concept. And I think it is important to, in a way, defend the integrity of it, because the International Energy Agency did a really great study that came out a week or two ago, where they talked about what is the best pathway to achieve the net zero climate goals laid out by the Paris Climate Agreement. And they had a line in there that said, There is no need for any fossil fuel infrastructure to be built beyond what we already have. There is no need. The most important building law of reaching zero, of doing the Paris Climate Agreement, is to rapidly reduce the amount of fossil fuel emissions. This is the biggest driver of the problem. And so when you have these fossil fuel companies saying that they, you know, we want to have net zero by 2050. There's several layers of problems there. You know, one is that they may be relying on things like offsets where they're like, yeah, well, you know, we're going to keep burning oil, but we're going to plant a bunch of trees. And there's a lot of questions and dangers there. But then often even that, they're not even really planning to do that. You know, Shell had this amazing disclosure where they said that when they actually had to disclose to their investors what their plan was, they said, Shell's operating plans and budgets do not reflect our net zero by 2050 goal. And so sometimes they're not even planning to do the bad version of net zero that they're doing. So there's a lot of layers there that I think need to be examined. And I think it's really important for there to be really ripe debate about what net zero means to make sure that it is a concept that is essentially protected. And transparency about what folks are actually doing versus what they say they're doing. Precisely. Well, we've been speaking with Duncan Meisel. He's campaign director at Clean Creatives. You can learn more about their work online at cleancreatives.org. Duncan Meisel, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for the chance to talk. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on FAIR's website, FAIR.org. The website's also the place to learn about our newsletter, Extra, to sign up for our Action Alert Network, and to show support for the show if you are so inclined. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin.